Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this second part of our podcast with Chris Sands, who is Senior Research Professor and Director of the Centre for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Washington. Chris is also, of course, a member of the Macdonald-Laurie Institute's Research Advisory Board. And in the first part of this podcast, uh, we began a discussion about uh, Canada-U.S. relations and particularly the NAFTA negotiations. In the second part of this two-part podcast series on Pod Bless Canada, we're going to dig more into the details of the negotiations between uh, our two countries and perhaps uh, get Chris to give us a little bit of a prognostication about how the rest of these negotiations will unfold and the future of Canada-U.S. relations in general. Before we get to the uh, current state of negotiations, you've just said something that uh, reminded me of another thing that uh, I think many Canadians are a little confused about, and that is, what's the right way to put this? How much final authority does Trump have versus the final authority of Congress on trade issues? Now, I, know, I understand the Constitution says, you know, foreign trade is a congressional responsibility. On the other hand, you know, the current uh, NAFTA agreement, I, I think I'm right in saying there is a provision for, uh, uh, to use the formal word, denouncing the the agreement, mm-hmm. uh, which belongs to the administration. So if Donald Trump, hypothetical, if Donald Trump said, I'm not happy with uh, the state of negotiation with Canada, I don't think it's going to get any better. I've got a separate agreement with Mexico. I'm just going to kill NAFTA. Wow. That is, that is a question that has animated a lot of discussions in Washington because so there's a long trend that we're starting to see reverse in which Congress simply delegated authority to the administration to handle trade. They just wanted to have one final vote on it when it came back. And it made some sense. One of the ways in which Canadians are now learning that, that Congress did it is in the Trade Act of 1962, in which they allowed the White House to pass national security tariffs relatively quickly with a, an investigation, but still to hit tariffs using national security as justification. The president and his advisors seized on this as perhaps the easiest way, easier than, say, Section 301 of the 74 Trade Act, for them to to put tariffs on countries as leverage to get them to negotiate. And we've seen this with autos, steel, and aluminum. Congress of late has started to regret having passed all of this authority on and has been trying to claw it back a little bit. And then you you saw that in the trade bill in 2015. But it's left a lot of little landmines around. The thinking about NAFTA withdrawal is that the agreement says that anyone of the three parties, Canada, U.S., Mexico, can withdraw with six-month notice to its opposite uh, numbers. However, I think people believe that the president is not fully able to effectuate withdrawal. He can issue the notice, but that Congress will have to concur. Um, If they don't, it's very likely that people who would be hurt by NAFTA withdrawal suddenly, and you might think the auto industry or other agriculture in the United States, will sue. Now, earlier in the Trump administration, say in in 2017, we saw individuals suing in court because of the president's um, ban on immigration or moratorium on immigration from countries that don't share data with us, often referred to as a Muslim ban, although it's not quite technically correct. And judges, even though in law enforcement and immigration are fully under the executive branch, still were willing to provide injunctive relief and stop this in its tracks, forcing the Supreme Court to ultimately deal with these issues. NAFTA would be even more likely to be challenged if you withdrew from NAFTA. And the Congress, 
you know, it's pretty clear in the Constitution, even if you're a creative living constitutionalist in the, in the United States, it, this belongs to Congress. If Congress doesn't concur, it's very unlikely the president can actually effectuate it. So now a little bit of gossip. Um, the feeling is that when the U.S.-Mexico agreement is submitted to Congress, because Congress's agreement on the legislation is that once it's submitted, they can't amend it, that the administration will put a line in that says when the U.S.-Mexico agreement takes effect, so too will the U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA take effect. And that will, if Congress votes on it, give Congress the approval. That means it's much more dangerous. So if you imagine that the text includes the notification, so that occurs at the end of this week, then we're talking about the end of March when we may have no NAFTA to fall back on. And that will increase pressure in two ways. It'll increase pressure on the Canadian negotiators because if they thought, well, if we don't come to a deal, we at least still have NAFTA in place, there'll be a question mark on whether that's still true if the US and Mexico go ahead and leave Canada behind. Something that I don't think Mexico wants and many Congress people don't want, but it would suddenly be an implication to take seriously. But that's the other piece. There's no timeline on Congress to pick this up and, and ratify it, but the president wants it done so that he can tout it and for his reelection in 2020, and so that he has that leverage against the Chinese, the Europeans, everyone else that we're having. Look, I did a good deal with my partners. Now I want a deal out of you. He doesn't want to have this drag out. So what, he, what he'll have done by putting the withdrawal clock on it is also mean that Congress can't wait forever. Because if they wait longer than that six months of notification, we'll be in the gray zone of zombie NAFTA, where it looks like the U.S. has withdrawn. The executive branch no longer wants to respect provisions like the old rule of origin, but the Congress hasn't replaced it with anything. So uh, what will happen? I think there'll be a lot of business confusion. A lot of people complain that this situation is unclear and intolerable. We need to have some decision. And that'll put pressure on Congress to, to ratify the agreement. Now, I want to, just before we get to the current state of negotiations, I keep pushing this off because you keep saying such interesting things. <laughs> I'm trying not to dodge your question, by the <laughs> no, way. No, 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 but we, we, I haven't even asked the question yet. Uh, so let's cast our minds back uh, in ancient history, the beginning of the NAFTA renegotiation process. I think it would be fair to say, certainly it was the view in Canada, that Canada was just along for the ride, that the real target of the United States was Mexico. Was Mexico that uh, where you know the the big investment was shifting in the automobile industry? Canada had lost uh, plants and investment in the auto industry to Mexico, just as the United States had. We were not the ones uh, who had been targeted by the administration for being the source of large scale illegal immigration, etc., etc., etc. And that uh, you know uh, Trump came to office uh, saying some rather nice things about uh, Canada, about Justin Trudeau, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, you know, basically a year later, America has struck a deal on the surface rather effortlessly with Mexico, and Canada's out in the cold and the bad guy. How did this happen? It, it, I think it's a fast, and we'll be writing books about this for a while. It really well, is tell a us fascinating the, what, moment. You must have the outline of your book in your head. Yes, yeah, so so. publishers who are listening, just send me the contract. I'll, I'll write this book. So what's interesting to me is, is the psychology of the three players. And you're right. At one point, Donald Trump was on a stage and said, you know, we're just going to tweak a few things with Canada. You can always improve agreements, but we're really focused on Mexico. But then when you saw USTR submit their negotiating agenda to Congress, which is start started the process, it had a lot of Canada on it. Many of the issues with Mexico were things like migration and other areas of cooperation that weren't formally part of NAFTA. But there were a long list of things from dairy to softwood to uh, to 
dispute resolution. Dispute, dispute resolution. All of these things were on a list. Now, why? Because Congress, the U.S. Canada trade is quite sophisticated, but as you know from watching Congress, we, we, there are a lot of individual members of Congress who represent border states and border communities who have a beef with Canada, and it may be potatoes this year or, or something. They're minor disputes, but what Congress wanted was those things addressed because that that's what they were complaining about. And what Robert Lighthizer promised is, your wish list is my wish list. We're going to work on all of those things. So at the very beginning, there was a warning, which is that maybe there were a few more demands coming from the U.S. on Canada, whereas many of the things that we wanted fixed with Mexico were outside trade, and trade was going to be used as a lever to get there. Secondly, Canadian early on, Canadian negotiating strategy was a bit... Um, maybe the best word is, is defensive. NAFTA worked for Canada. It was generally pretty good. You heard trade negotiators saying early on, well, Trump's the demander. He would like us to negotiate something, so let's see what he has to propose. Um, whereas if you remember with, with Canada's free trade and NAFTA, the Canadians had a reputation of being the most creative because you'd had the Donald Royal Commission. You'd been thinking about trade for a long time. You came with ideas. And the Americans said, well, this doesn't work very well. And Canada would always say, oh, well, here's here's a solution. And there's a position paper and it's great. Here, Canada wasn't playing that role because it was sort of hanging back saying, well, this is, as you said, mostly a US-Mexico negotiation. We're along for the ride. We want to help, but let's see what's, what's on the table. And I think they stayed defensive a bit, maybe a bit long. Uh, there was a pivot point that they somehow missed because it wasn't clear why, why have suddenly things become terrible. And and Trump didn't make this easier. You may remember he complained about dairy early on, but in a speech in Montana, he talked about how Canada was doing some really terrible things to the U.S. on energy. And I remember talking to people in Calgary saying, well, that's crazy. We sell you everything we can. We, we don't sell anybody else. At, at a, a discount. discount. <laughs> and so they were head scratching. And then we heard uh, revealed sort of from, from uh, one of the many books on the inside the Trump administration that he had said to somebody, well, I didn't actually know, but I knew energy was important. So I thought I'd throw it out there and see what they said because a guilty conscience sometimes reveals something you don't even know. So it was a faint. So how do you take this seriously? I, I'm, so I'm not critical of Canada hanging back, but there was a point at which the transition could go, could, could have come. Mexico, on the other hand, I think even their center-left new president-elect understands that for Mexico, NAFTA was the ticket out of the third world. This was their miracle change. And even if they were skeptical at first, it has made a, a palpable difference in Mexican economic growth. They didn't ever feel that they could hang back and be defensive. And when it came down to it and they were offered a chance to go bilateral, they like the Canadians. They don't want to throw Canadians under any buses, but they can't afford not to have this deal. Even if they don't like Trump, even if he says mean things, they have to do it. And so they were the distressed seller, the uh, eager buyer. Trump realized it. And we went bilateral and we got an agreement because we had the leverage. We were prepared to use it. The Mexicans and, and remember the internal Mexican dynamic. The new president wasn't likely going to be as friendly to the Mexico City business establishment as the old president was. So the business establishment said, do a deal now before that guy takes over. So they were really motivated. And then I think Canada was on the outside looking in saying, what did we do? And I, I, I must say, I find it a very charming Canadian quality. Because so many people I, I talked to were looking for what they should apologize for. But you've done nothing wrong, really. Yeah, you know, maybe we shouldn't have lectured the Americans so much about the glories of free trade. Maybe we shouldn't have talked so much to Congress. And some of that was in your early. I don't think Canada did anything wrong. I think the negotiations pivoted and now Canada was on the other side. Now, this famous line 
don't remember who said it, which is terrible. I, I apologize to all the podcast people who Google it and make me feel silly. But um, that you know, the devil's greatest uh, trick was to convince people he didn't exist. Donald Trump's greatest trick, if he pulls it off, is to convince Americans that Canada's a villain. That makes no sense. Even if you had like a, a goatee on Justin Trudeau and he was evil Justin Trudeau, you are the most implausible villain, I think, in American history. It's one of the reasons South Park and other shows feel, feel Blame fine. Canada. Blame, Blame Canada, Canada and mock you. It's, it's really a joke because they know that it, nobody takes it seriously. Canada's not going to invade, etc. However, he, he does seem to have gone a long way to convince uh, some of his voters that Canada has been harsh to our trade. And I, so uh, if he pulls this off, uh, I'll, I'll doff my, my cap, but, uh, but not happily because I, he's really tried to put you in that position. My feeling though is ultimately most Americans don't believe it. They do like the Canadians. They think the Canadians are on side. And this is the risk for Trump is that he overplays his hand and that he, by trying to make Canada out to a villain, people finally say, look, you know, we're with you on China. China cheats. We're skeptical about Mexico for other reasons, but Canada, why are we beating Canada? That just doesn't make sense. And I, no. And that's, uh, that's a good segue then to talk about where we think we are in the negotiations right now, because we're getting down to the short strokes, I think. Yes. Uh, and certainly in the media, the, uh, back to your point that really in this renegotiation, America is the demandeur, right? Mm. It's, it's America that is demanding to be satisfied. Yes. And the issues that seem to be outstanding are things like the dispute settlement mechanism, which we negotiated in the original NAFTA agreement, agreement extension of um, uh, patent protection for uh, prescription drugs. There mm -hmm. was some coverage about that in the paper just today. Uh, and of course, the famous supply management. There may be other more marginal things, but those seem to be the headline yes. issues. My own editorial comment is that all of these things are small beer, given the size of the relationship. And what we're looking for is not a win on, let's say, supply management, but a reliable framework that business can use to invest on both sides of the border. Yes. And in that context, you know, the entire dairy trade is a drop in a bucket. But is that a fair characterization of where we are in the negotiations? Are there other issues that we're less aware of? And if those are the issues... Is there a deal to be had? So my view is that a deal is possible because none of the things you've listed, and there might be a couple others, people have talked about the de minimis threshold yes. with which you can bring goods across the border, um, a few other uh, small, small things, but none of it is impossible to compromise on. I think that Canada did a lot of work to prepare the ground for the compromise in the U.S.-Mexico agreement that said you'd have a... 16-year sunset, not a five-year sunset, which provides much more predictability for business. Um, both sides worked on it, ended up in the U.S.-Mexico agreement. But to be fair, Canada should get some credit for that. That is a good solution. That would have been a real problem if it had stayed in. Government procurement, there seemed to have been a compromise early on, some suggestion this week that the U.S. wanted more, but that seems to settle down. In addition to the things you mentioned, one of the things that made the talks get a bit wobbly this week was that the United States insisted that Canada couldn't simply claim concessions that were on the U.S.-Mexico table. They would have to pay for them separately. And on autos, the U.S. proposed a cap on how many vehicles that Canada would be allowed to export and that everything above the cap would be hit with this 25% Section 232 tariff on automobiles. Highly disruptive. 
And while the Mexican cap was set at double their production in the previous year, the proposal was the same size cap for Canada, which is just a bit more than what you exported last year. That's going to be very tough for the auto sector to to claim. So we've lost a bit of ground and we have to come up with a compromise. But I think everything is fundamentally compromisable. So on dairy, I don't think we'll convince the government of Canada to get rid of dairy supply management, even though from an economic point of view, this would be your opportunity to do so because it's good for you and then blame Donald Trump. However, I don't think the government is going to go there. But uh, as the Harper government did, and as this government did with the CETA, we have carved out quota space for imports before. I think it's all about what that magic number is. It'll be something. I don't know where, but to me, that's a negotiation. You'll come up with a compromise. Everybody will say the other guy had me over a barrel and that'll be fine. Dispute resolution. The best case is that we come up with some way to continue dispute resolution, but it has taken on a mythic quality, I think, among Canadians, because you really invented it. Chapter 19 in NAFTA is based on Chapter 19 in the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement. It's, it's a dispute settlement mechanism because at the time, going back to the 80s, the only alternative was to go to domestic court. And the U.S. Court of International Trade at that time was an administrative law tribunal. So it oversaw the activities of U.S. government agencies. There's a lot of debate in the U.S. about these administrative tribunals that they're not normal courts. But in the time since then... The Court of International Trade in the U.S. has become an Article III court. It's a full judicial body. And it has a remand rate that is kicking things back to the U.S. government and saying, fix it because you screwed up the math or you did it wrong. That's around 45%. As we saw earlier this year, the U.S. International Trade Commission, which is still an administrative law tribunal, has rejected Commerce's claims on Boeing Bombardier dumping and, and also on newsprint. So the system can work and Canadians may find that even without chapter 19 or dispute settlement at some sort of arbitral panel process, they can get justice in the US system in a way that, that they maybe didn't think they could. Easy for me to say, right? But I think from the American side, the Canadian International Trade Tribunal is a bit more home team biased, and um, and we would be the ones taking the risk by getting rid of Chapter 19. That's what I try to get through the heads of our negotiators, because I think it's all on us if we decide to get rid of this, this option. And of course, we also have WTO, which would give us arbitral panels as well. Let's say none of that works. Um, I wrote a bit about this for for in a paper for, for another think tank earlier this year, and I think Canada, if it doesn't get Chapter 19 in this deal, could go to Congress and say, we would like to revive Chapter 19 in the Canada's Free Trade Agreement. Mexico gave it up. That's their business. But we're going to have a Chapter 19 process for Canada the U.S. Symbolically, that gives Canada a victory. We, we still have it. It's already passed by Parliament and Congress, so no legislation is required. Just has to, we just have to unsuspend that one provision. Um, there are a few little details that change, but that would give us a way of dealing with it. Not the best, though, because... As you know, we have four requests for softwood lumber panels uh, under Chapter 19 of NAFTA that the U.S. has refused to impanel. So Canada asks, and the, either government can say, we don't want to have a panel, and, and there's no panel. But you can take things to the Court of International Trade, and it is a court, and the government of the United States must show up and defend itself or lose. So maybe this is a vehicle that has lost its it's punch. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't die on the cell. I would not scrap NAFTA for that issue. It's just not that important. On pharmaceuticals, this is a tricky one. I think it was one of the little surprises in the U.S.-Mexico agreement that they agreed to 10 years. Mexico doesn't have a very big pharmaceutical industry, so they didn't feel they were giving up that much. But Canada has a pharmaceutical industry that produces generics, also has a public system that is looking at cost containment. The U.S. wanted 12 years of biologics protection in the TPP. Canada 
didn't want it. The compromise was five. That was what most of the TPP countries were willing to accept. And then that was walked back because the U.S. didn't finally sign the agreement because that was so controversial. And now we've asked for 10. So that's very, very difficult, I think, for Canada to to easily accept if it doesn't get something on the other side. Um, At the same time, if it were to go through, the biologics are the hardest for the generics to make quick copies of. So that's helpful. And in the in terms of their uh, intended beneficiaries, the people who have that one in a million disease or, or condition, uh, there will not be that many people in Canada who will be a market for that in the short run. So it may be a compromise to eight years. It may be something, and it's something we'll have to go back and fix, perhaps with another president. Last question. Sir. 2019, will we have an after agreement? I think so. And... I take the full implication of that, not a U.S.-Mexico agreement, and US, but a NAFTA agreement. We may have renamed it. I've been starting a thing on Twitter. Uh, what would be the new name for NAFTA? And you know, all sorts of great suggestions. But, um, but I, I think whether we call it NAFTA or not, we, I think we will have an agreement for a couple of reasons. One, I think Donald Trump wants to count this as a promise that he has kept when he runs for re-election. Two, he likes this issue because traditional Republicans and Democrats don't know what to do with it. Many of my Republican friends are big free traders, and they are afraid to cross the president on this, even when they know it's the right thing to do. And on the Democratic side, the progressive movement that's animating a lot of the energy, the Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren group, isn't very focused on trade. But the old trade union voters, certainly the big trade unions, are worried that blue-collar voters are migrating to Republicans, and they want desperately to not be on the wrong side on trade. So I think the U.S. is going through a trade political earthquake here. A realignment maybe is a gentler way to say it. I think also that China will become the issue that is eclipsing all the rest of trade because it's so important. And that will bring us to a new WTO round. You may know that Canada's already put some proposals forward. The G20 is talking about a WTO round. The Seattle round that Bill Clinton tried to launch after Uruguay died in the streets of Seattle and all the protests the Doha round that was launched right after September 11th, actually on the same day there was meeting in Doha to launch this round, um, was supposed to be the development round and has come nowhere. So we haven't had significant negotiations on the World Trade Organization, which could use its updates as well and its modernization since 1996. We have not had a concluded round. So there's a lot to be dealt with. And I think we'll want to be focusing on that going into the next U.S. election. Well, Chris Sands, there's lots more that we could talk about, but I think we've given our listeners uh, a a lot to chew over. So uh, I want to thank uh, all of you uh, listening to this podcast for uh, listening to the latest edition of uh, Pod Bless Canada. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest from MLI, and you can listen to all of our podcasts at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Thanks very much, Chris Sands. It's a pleasure. 